0: Detroit, it's gonna fire to fire this is the
1: And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez. Down a
0: fastball, swung on. It's a deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back. And- From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's Country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show,
1: Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible... The pod animal Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back into Captain Kirk's chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories what's juicy Cmeds, baseball is officially back pitchers and catchers have reported the trucks have been loaded and sent to their spring training destinations all the gear bats balls protective cups not to mention the world baseball classic is on the horizon and I can't wait to see these countries get down for some international baseball supremacy you feel me I mean, we got our typical baseball powers in the United States, Dominican Republic, and Japan, but Puerto Rico, Venezuela, the Netherlands, they're lurking in the shadows, and I also think we got some dark horse teams in Israel, Mexico, Colombia, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and they're sneaky good, and luckily for you guys, I try to be well thought out, and we got a WBC show coming, I'll be doing that WBC show in a couple weeks to get you into that mode hopefully. As you know, I'm a huge mark from the WBC. So, excitement is about here at the Robinson Geary Studio Complex in beautiful Pauly's Island, South Carolina. It's been a long off-season, but my hardcore c audience, they've stuck with me for the lean months, and I literally live vicariously through your passion for the game and your teams. The audience is my strength. And I feel like this year, after all the COVID issues and contentious uh, CPA negotiations for the past years, uh, there's a greater optimism in the air. Except for you know, unfortunately, maybe the A's fans, who's yeah, you know, their optimism has literally plummeted like a stone the past few years. But yeah, you know, even the Pirates fans I've talked to this year, they're optimistic. Uh, The past few few, uh, years, more so than the the last few years, even the Pirates fans I've talked to this year are optimistic about their young talent. Uh, Not so much the owner Bob Nutting, but yeah, they're, they're loving the talent on the big league roster and underneath on the lower levels. So I think with labor peace, expanded playoff formats, no more shifts, universal DH, this may be one of the most intense seasons in a while. As a person who is supposed to measure the pulse of the fans, I feel really good about this season. The State of the Union for Baseball is strong from the everyday fans' perspective. More teams feel like they're going to be in it this year. I'm even optimistic about my Orioles this year. It looks to be a very exciting and competitive MLB year. And I intend to be here every Tuesday with that free Baseball Smoke.
0: You don't want like that
1: smoke. And I'm here today, joined at the hip back is my boy, my studio and producer, my in-studio producer, my Bond Squatch, 12 Gage Productions, the Batman to my Superman, Big Tex Gage Geehan. What's up, player? How are you? Hey, man. I'm doing well. Um, you know, long work week, but not too bad. Unfortunately, my Cowboys weren't in the Super Bowl this year, but... You know, we have been for about 27, so I guess you could say I'm used to it. Hi, <laughs> Jackson. Well, I know this is a little a tough up for you, being this All-American stud out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, football's over. No more hook em horns Cowboys fall short of their goals once again. Uh, first of all, how long do you go through football withdraw- withdrawals in a normal year? How long is this going to take for you? It's going to take a little while. <laughs> you know? I mean... F- football is my first love, you know? I, yeah, of course. You're from Texas. And I, I love many it. sports. Right. I love them all, honestly. Right, right. But football is my first love, and my Cowboys are my second love. I hear you. So, and, well, what did you think about that Super Bowl last night? You know, I, I, I thought it was awesome. It was it was uh it was a great quarterback duel, and you know I I played a little QB back in high school, so right. I love it I love it when they start going at it, yeah. you know throwing forty yard bombs, really locking into their mental state and balling out on the field. Yeah, and, and the Chiefs just I mean they looked unstoppable in the second half. I mean four straight b- drives right down the middle of the fucking field, uh, absolutely beautiful. Well, look, big fella, it's great to have you back in the studio. It was empty here without you. You're big, you know. I need the big body in here, okay? So, welcome back and, uh, now break a leg, kid. Let's fucking get it get it on. Good to be uh, back. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear, you know, this or any of the other shows in my always expanding world of archives. I wholeheartedly. Heartedly enjoy bannering with the fans. I very much encourage it. I love looking at the game through different eyes and experiences and perspectives. And you can always find me personally at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. And Honestly, if someone wanted to put out, you know, a social media hit on me, it'd be real simple to pull off because I'm always there. Uh, mixing it up with the audience and the fans. So you can always find me there at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook page. Um You can also find me on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. We have an Instagram account and a YouTube channel at backwards K pod. And look, I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. And I'm always accessible. In fact, I want to thank you guys for... All the kind words about the Quisenberry show last week. I was pleasantly surprised, in fact. Uh, We've done some real tense shows lately. The Earthquake series, DiMaggio, Ernie Banks, U.S. Presidents, Jackie Robinson. And I kind of wanted to rein the audience in a little bit before we made our push into the season. And it's going to sound funny to some people, but I I learned watching one of my childhood idols, Vincent Kennedy McMahon. I, I learned how to control the crowd how he does it at his wrestling shows. And you can't exhaust the audience out before you get to the main event. Uh, Not that the quiz wasn't a serious topic, but he's so lovable and affable. And uh, he's such a good human being that I wanted to color outside the lines a little and celebrate his birthday memory. And I'm glad I did it. Number one, I learned a lot about the man, And number two, the audience went over for it. The audience never ceases to amaze me. I got a message from Lance, Cardsman, who lives in Blanco, Texas. You know where that's at? I do not know where Blanco, Texas is. There's so many small towns in Texas. So many. Probably like 40 people that live there. Uh, He noted how rare submarine sidearm and knuckleball pitchers are rare today. And he laments how scouts want guys who only throw in high 90s with crazy spin right now and the only way these guys have a chance to be drafted anymore is if they begin as hard throwers and then like an R.A. Dickey or a Jim Bhutan, uh they're gonna have to reinvent themselves but he emphasizes they have to begin as hard throwers unless maybe they come from Korea or Japan something like that situation and honestly he ain't wrong we've had a few recently Tim Diller for the Brewers You may need a a GM like Billy Bean, who doesn't really care about conventional baseball theories uh, by giving a a Chad Bradford a shot. Darren O'Day, who just retired a couple weeks ago, he made quite a living making batters smash balls into weak grounders. But, yeah, you're right. They they are coming few and far between these days. Thank you for the message, Lance. Got another message from Martin out of Lakeland, Florida. I thought Quiz was a damn fine closer, one who I always thought was borderline Hall of Fame. I knew he had a short career, but a five-time relief man of the year, spent nearly half of his career as an elite closer, and when he retired, he was top five in saves. And those are all valid points, Martin. He he accentuated that closer role during the 1980s when the position really kind of took off. Um, And we're going to talk about that position a little bit today with today's topic. Uh, The position has certainly evolved since then, but quiz should never be forgotten when it comes to top flight closers. Thank you for the line, Martin. So look, I was very happy with the response. Sounds like the majority of you enjoyed it as well. And now it's on to this week's topic. When I look back on the 1980s, it was such an influential era of my life and spearheading all these moments of my teenage years was the game of baseball. I learned about things like work stoppages. Baseball isn't just a game but a money-making business. I learned that my Orioles didn't own a patent on pennant races as their dominance of the 60s and 70s collapsed in the 80s. I learned that there are more important things and life than baseball. I learned that after watching the destructive results of the 1989 Earthquake series. And the 1980s were clearly my formative and learning years of baseball as a game and as a business. And because of that, a lot of my childhood innocence was kind of stripped away during the 80s. There was one single season team that captured my imagination of what a powerhouse team looks like. I was 13 years old, and I had never seen such a vulgar display of baseball power in my life. So, with that being said, I see the infield is, uh, I see the catch coming down, the infield is tossing that rock <laughs> around, and I think it's time... Uh, To call all aboard as we load this runaway time travel freight train and set our destination for Motown, Detroit Rock City, in the year of our Lord, 1984, where we will be examining the, bless you boys, 1984 Detroit Tigers, who simply bullied their way to a wider wild championship that year in one of the most dominant ways ever by a Major League Baseball team. So, If you would all open your Bibles to Tigers, chapter 19, verse 84, going into that year, the Tigers were an organization on the rise under manager Sparky Anderson. Now, we've spoken about Sparky quite a few times here at BKP. I've covered him in the Big Red Machine pod, also in the Laurent LaFleur show, and both of those are cataloged, cataloged, of course, wherever you listen to my shows. I mentioned... In both of those shows, how Sparky was eventually forced out of Cincinnati following the 1978 season and that Detroit would hire him a year later. The 1984 Tigers, up until that time, had a stagnant run since their last AL East pennant in 1972. They lost 102 games in 1975, but other than that, they were kind of like this middle-of-the-road team. They were They were never awful during that stretch, but... They also, they they weren't great, and they never seriously contended during that stretch until 1981, when the Tigers did jump into the postseason hunt, and in 1983, when they clawed out uh, 92 wins and come up short to the eventual world champion Baltimore Orioles for the AL East crown. The Tigers had a talented young middle infielder and shortstop Alan Trammell, second baseman Lou Whitaker. The former, a future Hall of Famer, and the latter should be. They had another rising star, a type A leader who just seems to make guys around him better in Kirk Gibson. Uh, This ridiculously talented young trio, they were all under 28 years old at this time. So, joining this nucleus of generational type ballers in that lineup was Lance Parrish, the power hitting catcher who smashed 33 dogs center fielder Chet Lemon, first baseman Dave Bergman, and D.H. Darrell Evans. And all six of those dudes were proficient, high-on-base percentage guys, and the lineup as a whole was number one in the American League in runs that year. The Tigers pitching, it kind of mirrored their young, talented lineup, with 29-year-old Jack Morris serving as the anchor and the ace of the staff. He won 19 games that year, and he completed nine games, which is a lot, especially nowadays, but it's especially a lot when you play for good old Captain Hook, Sparky Anderson. Uh, Throughout his career, Morris always saved his best performances for the glare of the largest lights and the biggest stage, and 1984 would, in many ways, would be the beginning of this kind of revelation of who Jack Morris is. Joining Morris was the 25-year-old Dan Petrie, who won 18 games as well that year with a 3.24 ERA, 7 complete games. Milt Wilcox was the third man in that rotation, and he is all forgotten with the 17 wins, but he was every bit as solid as he was on Spectacular. Just kind of like this blue-collar pitcher who went out, did his job every day. That he was scheduled to pitch. The the bully had a tremendous bridge from middle innings to back end of a game. Aurelio Lopez, he was that bridge. He won ten games in that spot with a 2.94 ERA in 137 innings pitched. But The biggest difference from the 1983 Tigers to this dominant force of nature in 1984 was the acquisition of closer Willie Hernandez, who we mentioned last week, edged out quiz for the 1984 AL Cy Young Award. Manager Sparky Anderson, he goes to the team GM Bill Oswey during the 1983 offseason, and he tells him, if you give me this guy right here, we will win it all. So on March 24th, 1984, GM LaWazue, he bought into what Sparky was selling and, you know, hey, it sounds good. Let, let's you know That's what we need to win a World Series. Let, let's get him. So he broke a trade with the Phillies. And he said fan-favorite catcher John Walkenfuss and Glenn Wilson to Filthy in exchange for uh, Willie here and Dave Bergman. And in the beginning, many fans were skeptical about trading Walkenfuss. They, they loved that dude. But Sparky, Stuck to his baseball intuition and his guns. And honestly, many of the players recalled feeling positive about this move as Anderson had won the boys over with his winning ways by now. They loved Walkie, but they appreciated the aggressive move by management even to make the team better, even if it cost them a player like Waukee and, and that was the day many of these guys knew they were going to be hell to deal with in the upcoming season. And again, I think Willie in that '84 season, they get overlooked and forgotten about. But he was probably about as valuable a single-season player has ever been on a team. You know, not on the ultimate Mo Rivera level, but, damn, Willie was a godsend to the Tigers. He, he gave Detroit, like, this serious, two-headed Hispanic monster... At the back end of that bully and himself and Aurelio Lopez. And to illustrate my point, I want to go over those uh, Willie Hernandez 1984 stats with you. Because even though the powerful productive bats is what most people remember about this team... It was Hernandez who was the glaring difference between the Tigers team during the 1984 season from where they had come from, you know, ending up short and achieving their team goals. Willie Hernandez. Now, to point out how good Sparky's eye was for talent, I want to point out that Hernandez had pitched for the Cubs for seven years in the National League. And he caught Sparky's eye when the Hall of Fame manager was driving that big red machine over NL opponents. So, with the Cubs, seven years, Willie went 26-28 and 28 with a 3.38 ERA, 465 in the third innings pitched, 1,987 batters faced, 455 hits allowed, 329 strikeouts. He averaged 6.4 strikeouts per nine innings as a Cubby. 184 walks surrendered, about three of them per nine innings. Uh, an atrocious, 1.38 whip, which... Even though he doesn't walk anyone, he gave up almost a hit per inning. He had a pedestrian 3.56 FIP and a 1.07 ERA plus, just slightly above the average pitcher. And he had a grand total of 20 saves with the Northsiders. He then went to Filthy, where he went 8-4 with a 3.29 ERA, 7 saves in 1983. And where Sparky tells us at Kiev, you know, we got to have this guy. Our world title aspirations depend on it. And typical Sparky playing chess while the other seamen are grinding away playing checkers. King me. Hernandez makes Sparky look like a baseball savant that he was anyway by rewarding him with the season for the ages from a bully arm. Willie leads the AL with 80 appearances and 63 games finished. 9-3 record with a 1.93 ERA. 32 saves. Hernandez was a stud. 548 batters faced in high leverage late inning contest. In 140 in the third innings pitched, he allowed six home runs. His strikeout rate jumped as he averaged 7.9 strikeouts per nine as opposed to the 6.3 that he had in the shot. His whip went from 1.38 to .94. His walk-to-strikeout ratio improved to 36 walks and 112 strikeouts. Those 112 strikeouts, they marked the most of his career. He was elected to the first All-Star game. And he won his first and only Cy Young, and MVP award as well. So, there you have it, folks. Hernandez was a stud in 1984. Uh, When the deal was made in March to acquire him and... uh, There was barely a a ripple that ran through the baseball universe. After Willie and Sparky ambushed the AL, the American League finally realized what the NL already knew. And that Sparky can win anywhere he goes. And you should should probably just give him what he asked for because he's going to make that shit work. Not many scouts or player development coaches could have seen the impact Willie would have on that team. But Sparky saw it and Hernandez became the second closer in four years to win both the Cy Young Award and the league's MVP following Raleigh Fingers in 1981. During that amazing 1984 season, Sparky kept a diary, and it eventually became a book. It was entitled, Bless You Boys, The Diary of the Detroit Tigers 1984 Season. And the phrase, Bless You Boys, was the catchphrase, that Anderson would adopt from Detroit sportscaster Al Ackerman. The book would be co-authored with the help of Tigers public relations director Don Ould. And the diary accounts for the first 151 games of the season through the odds of Sparky, who... Thoroughly enjoyed keeping a written account of his talented team that year. He once quipped, it was fun. Every night before I went to bed, i turned turn the tape recorder on and just talk about the game that we just played. And it was so easy just to sit and talk. The book was released to critical acclaim. And I highly recommend it to Seamhead Freaks. Again, it's called Bless You Boys, The Diary of the Detroit Tigers 1984 Season. And you should really be on that. You freaks. Going into April and May, the Tigers' schedule did not feature the anticipated AL East powers in the defending champion Orioles, Brewers, or Yankees. Of the Tigers' uh, old AL East rivals back then, only the Red Sox and Cleveland were on the schedule for the first two months. Neither of them were expected to contend, and they lived true to their predictions. Much to the chagrin of the AL contenders, by the time Detroit played a preseason contender from the East, they were in total control of the race with a historical start for the ages. They set the They set the tone on opening night, and they never looked back, except to, well, occasionally laugh at those other teams that are supposed to compete with them. These dudes were like Debo, and the rest of the league was DJ Pooh getting knocked the fuck out for even suggesting. That the Tigers might have accidentally stolen their bike. That's a Friday reference. Opening night, 1984. The Detroit Tigers put on a preview of what was to come. When they hammered the Twins 8-1 in the Metro Dome. Jack Morris threw seven innings of one hit ball. Dale Evans put the game out of reach with a three-run dong in the seventh. Newly acquired bully arm Willie Hernandez. He pitched a clean ninth. And the Tigers sent it up the AL East tied with a 1-0 record. The Tigers completed the short two-game sweep of the Twins the next day, and then they traveled to the Windy City to take on the White Sox at Old Comiskey Park. On Friday, Hernandez recorded his first save as a Tiger when he secured a 3-2 gem that was spun by Milt Wilcox. Now, Saturday was the NBC Game of the Week. Jack Morris would start on three days rest and shock the nation with a dagger to the White Sox throat by pitching the earliest no-hitter in baseball history, tying in with Ashland's pitcher Ken Forsch, who no-hit Atlanta on April 7, 1979. It was a cold day in Chicago, with the prevailing wind swirling inside the old Southside ball yard, and Jack, he really didn't have his best stuff early in the game, fortunately for Detroit. One of the rarely, rarely mentioned ballplayers of the 1980s, Tiger center fielder Chet Lemon. He would stake Morris with a 2 nothing lead after his two-run bomb in the fourth. Lance Parrish, Jack's trusted battery mate. He remembered that his boy had little control with the splitter early. It was dropping more than he had ever seen it do. Uh, he recalled that Jack had no idea where the pitch would end up. But fortunately... Neither did the Sox hitters who continued to flail away at this devastating out pitch. And while Lance was, you know, blocking pitches behind the, the plate, and you know, stopping stuff in the dirt, these dudes are just swinging and missing. Well, later in the game, bottom of the fourth, the hitters, they become wise and they stayed off of that split. And Morris would walk the bases loaded. So... They got Rudy Law third, Carlton Fisket second, and Harold Baines on first. But Jack, true to his tro- profile, uh, you know, this pitcher who performs under the bright lights and high leverage pressure. He wiggles out of the jam by inducing slugger Greg Lasinski to ground into a 1-2-3 double play, wiping out Law at the plate, and then on the first to catch the plotting bull. He then struck out Ron Kittle to end the only threat the White Sox had all day at a hit or a run. And following his death-defying trapeze move with no net in the top of the fifth, Kirk Gibson doubled in a run. Sweet Lou padded the lead with some geico insurance off an RBI fielder's choice. The thing Jack remembers about that game was twofold. One, Alan Trammell, he didn't get a defensive play on night. He can never remember a start before or after where uh, Tramm didn't get at least one put-out chance. The second thing you remember was this obnoxious Sox fan sitting behind the visitor's dugout. Around the sixth inning, the dude begins trolling Jack. He's yelling stuff like, hey, Morris, you got a no-hitter going. Hey, Jack, can you believe it? A no-hitter. Hey, Jack, hey, Jack. And this goes on and on and on. It goes on in the seventh. Dude's chirping in his ear, and Jack is still keeping his poise. By the eighth, the Sox man is desperate to make you know he's desperate to make this you know reverse curse kind of work here for him, and he's becoming louder and more obnoxious than ever. So as Morris walks out of the dugout, going into the night, the dude starts flapping his dick lickers again, and Morris, in his words thinks to himself, you know, I'm tired of this shit. So, after the fan reminds him that he has a no-hitter going in the ninth inning, Morris looks the man in the eye. He points at him, and he bellows loud enough for the troll to hear him. Yeah, I know. Now watch me go get it. Paris remembers the, the, the meat and the potatoes of the White Sox offensive attack was due up in the ninth. Two future Hall of Famers and catcher Carlton Fisk and right fielder Harold Baines, as well as slugger Lizzynski and the 1983 rookie of the year power bat Ron Kittle in the hole. Lance said uh, he went through Pudge and Bainesy like a hot knife through butter. Lizzynski took a walk on a full count splitter that felt like a strike to me and Jack. But then Morris composed himself, he put Kittles in a hole, and then he left him weakly swinging at that beautiful splitter to end it. And Jack. Just really made Ron look bad that day. And Jack often remarks you need a little walk to pull off a no hitter or even a complete game. I got very lucky in the fourth. My teammates picked me up with the gloves and bats that day. I've had better stuff in games before and after that day. You know, things just went my way that day. It was the fifth no hitter in Tigers history and the first since Jim Bunning trolled a gem. On July 20th, 1958. And Dave Bergman remember sitting in the Comiskey Field Clubhouse after the game thinking, this will be the team highlight of the season. But what he didn't realize until October of that year, the whole year would be a constant highlight reel on loop. The Morris No here made a lot of heads turn in 1984. The Tigers are now 3-0. And they look a little threatening. They could be for real. Within a week, they would turn the baseball universe on its head with an undefeated record. After sweeping the Southsiders and taking two from the Rangers in a short set, they travel east of Boston. They pound the Red Sox 13-9. After several days of rain, they play Kansas City at home. They beat them with a 10th inning walk-off, pushing their record to 9 and up. On April 19th, the Tigers lose their first game of the season as Royals rookie right-handed pitcher Brett Saberhagen reduces Detroit to mere mortals. But the Tigers didn't flinch. After that loss, they went on to sweep the White Sox, the Twins, and the Rangers to an improve th- this astounding 16-1 and record. <laughs> and my boy Gage is giving them, giving them the finger. <laughs> and a trend is beginning to emerge as sparky with his... Deep Depth Ball Club would sit back and seemingly watch a new team hero materialize night after night with each new victory. On April 29th, Dan Petrie, he nearly matched Jack by taking a no-hitter into the eighth inning of a game versus Cleveland until George Vukovich's double would end the attempt. Petrie would just have to accept his third win and tip his cap to Vuk. Two days later, Mil Wilcox improved to three and L. He goes eight strong to beat the Red Sox. Throughout the year, both Wilcox and Petrie tape formed one of the most devastating trios in the AL behind Morris. The, the three would combine for fifty-four wins. They were competitive with one another, always trying to outdo the other guy. And Alan Travel used to love hitting for those guys. He we were nine and L. And then we were 18-2, and, and we didn't think anyone could beat us with those guys on the mound, quite honestly. On May 12th, the Tigers are again on NBC Game of the Week, and this time, they're hosting the Angels at Tiger Stadium. Chet Lemon makes his mark early when he steals third base in the second inning, and then he scampers home after the Aaron throws sailed down the left field line. Two innings later, Lemon rakes an RBI single, giving the Tigers an early 2 to nothing lead. Reggie Jackson would drop two run dong on Juan Barringer's lips, and the Halos would come back to beat Detroit, handing them only their fifth loss in thirty one games. The next day was uh the game was rained out. And on Monday, the Tigers opened a three game set versus the Mariners, followed by three versus Oakland. And Sparky goes aggressive. He lines up Morrison Wilcox on three days rest, and his intention is to squash the fucking competition. The Tigers outscore Seattle and the A's forty to twenty-one, sweeping both series. This team is completely unstoppable. And the Tigers fans—they know it. They're wrapped up in their passionate love for the team and. The fans did something for the very first time in baseball history, a tradition that still remains. May 16th, 1984, in the Mariners' season, the Tigers, as usual, in eighty four, they ambushed the Mariners for five runs in the first inning, (laughs) sending nine Tigers to the plate. I mean, it's just demoralizing. In the second inning, the fans at Tiger Stadium began doing the wave. It started in center field, and it started to sweep around the old girl. Most people credit the Michigan Wolverines fans at the Big House for introducing the wave to sports fans and then bringing that tradition to Tiger Stadium in 1984. On May 21st, the Tigers were 32-5 and five as they headed to California for their first West Coast road trip. By now... The baseball universe is captivated by this juggernaut team. Alan Trammell is on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and the national media is intensifying. Detroit swept the Halos at Big A, running their win streak to nine games, just as they had at the beginning of the year. And they tied a record set by the 1911 New York Giants with their 17th consecutive road win, pushing their record to an amazing 35-5. and It still remains the best 40-game start to a season in baseball history. The previous mark of 33 wins was held by the 1928 and 1939 New York Yankees, who both won World Series titles during those seasons. The Tigers were eight and a half games in front of second place Toronto going into June. The Jays were off to a pretty good start themselves for the 1984 season. They would trim that lead down to three and a half games at one point, but that's as close as it would ever get. There was some concern on Sparky's mind that his boys may become complacent after the incredible start, but... His worries would prove to be unfounded as the Tigers rolled to a franchise record 104 wins that season. On June 1st, the Tigers sport a 37-9 record. The Jays and their hot start has shaved Detroit's lead down to 5.5 with the Orioles in third trying to get in the race. The next 14 games were all against the Jays and the Orioles and this would probably be the ALEs' best chance to dent Detroit's margin. The Orioles came into Detroit, but the Tigers were ready. Game one, Tramble had three hits in a victory, including a two-run bat blast. Detroit exploded for six runs in the second, and he routed the Birds fourteen to two. But the Orioles would avenge that game one loss as the Bird Birds pitchers put the Tigers in check with a five nothing uh, uh, win on Saturday and a two to nothing two to one win on Sunday. The, the Orioles beat them the last two games in that series when. Toronto came into the Motor City after the Orioles series. The Tigers' bats were still like this hangover state from that Baltimore pitching. With the Jays up 3 nothing in the seventh, and with Toronto ace Dave Steve on the bump, things didn't look really good in Mudville that day. Suddenly, June is here, and maybe these Tigers are vulnerable after all. But Chet Lemon gets hit by a pitch. Bergman singles, and unproven utility player Howard Johnson steps to the plate. And Hojo is an unknown commodity at this time, and he drills a steep pitch into the right field roof, tying the game. The game would remain uh, deadlocked at threes until the 10th inning, and with two out, two on, Bergman clobbers a home run for the Tigers' walk-off win. The late innings Horrellics, they loomed big as Detroit dropped the next two games versus Toronto, setting up that Game 4 finale between the two hottest teams of the 1984 season, Jack Morris on the hill, and he kept the Tigers in the game with a 1-1 tie in 6 when the Tigers' bats awakened. Parish singles, Dale Evans draws a walk, back up Rupert Jones, he climbs a 3-run dinger. The Tigers went on a win 5-3, getting a split with the Towns of Blue Jays uh, by force of a trio of three run home runs. And I got to think Sparky's good friend Earl Weaver was somewhere smiling. I'm convinced. The Tigers went on the road for a rematch with the Orioles on a Friday night. Wilcox was pitching well, but Detroit was trailing 2-1 to one in the 7th. It looked like the O's might hurt the Tigers again like the previous week when the Tigers lost the series to, the series to Baltimore. But Ber- Bergman coaxes a walk. Howard Johnson doubles him in to tie the game, taking third on an error. And Tram would knock in Hojo with a sack fly, putting the Tigers on top 3-2. to two. And Sparker would hand the ball off to Hernandez, who shut down the O's bats. Effortlessly. (laughs) Let's call it that. The Orioles beat the Tigers in Game 2, setting the stage for a Sunday doubleheader. And, <laughs> yeah, D- D- Detroit, they play like they were tired of Baltimore shit. They beat the Orioles 18-4 to in a combined doubleheader sweep. The first game was dominated by the top three players in the Tigers' lineup. Wicker scored five runs. Both Trammell and Gibson had four RBIs apiece as Detroit the O's 10-4. to In Game 2, the Orioles still had no answers for the Tigers' baseball machine as Gibson and Trammell scorched the Orioles' pitchers for three more hits Uh, a piece in the nightcap and Dan Petrie-Cruz to an 8-0 shutout. So, taking 3 or 4 from the Orioles and pretty much ended any hope Baltimore had, taking out Detroit and defending the world title. And all the while, in the meantime, the Yankees were busy sweeping the Jays in the boogie-down Bronx. The Tiger lead was now 7 games. They would go on to lose 2 or 3 in the next series, which was versus Toronto, but they had survived the big stretch of ALE's East teams and powers, and they had an ALE's East lead that sat at around five and a half games at the beginning of a 14-game stretch, and it now stood at seven games. Detroit had come out of the trip better than they were going in. Then they went on to win 9 of 13 games versus the Brewers and the Yankees. And their lead grew to 10 games. They slumped a little bit going to the All-Star break against the AL West teams. Which allowed the Jays to shave the lead back down to 7 games. But Detroit responded. And boy did they ever. They won 11 of 14 games coming out of the break. And pushing that margin up to 11 and a half games. On Labor Day. The Tigers led by eight and a half games. Baltimore was third, 14 games off the pace. The the race appears to be over, certainly for Baltimore. But with a 12-game series of games versus the Orioles and Blue Jays, there was still a modicum of hope for Toronto. On the other side of the coin, this was Detroit's chance to dig that hole and bury these sons of bitches. The Tigers lost uh, four of six to the Orioles. But it was too late for Baltimore. Detroit needed uh, to finish off the last threat, albeit a very small threat to their pennant hopes, the Toronto Blue Jays. They go into Canada. They roll up 24 runs in a three-game series for the sweep. They then molested the Jays back home, taking two or three, essentially ending all hope for anyone in the East. The Tigers were up with a 12-game lead with two weeks to go. Two days after the J Series, Willie Hernandez nails down a three to nothing victory over the Brewers of Miliwauke, clinching the East and ending with champagne showers in the bowels of County Stadium. The nineteen eighty four Tigers, they finished with a one hundred four and fifty eight record, fifteen games ahead of Toronto. The most thorough ass kicking American League uh, teams had experience at this time from a team not named the Yankees and that would prove to be the first of three champagne celebrations for the Motown mauling Tigers of 1984. The Tigers faced off versus A.L. West Pennant winning Kansas City Royals and what was still a best of five A.L. Championship Series. This would be the last year of the best of five uh, league championship series as MLB would implement the best of seven format that we have today, uh, the next year in 1985. As we touched on this a little bit last week in the Quizberry Show. The Royals, while certainly the preeminent AL West power at that time, and still a good year from their first world title um, the next year, they just weren't that dominant in 1984. Their 84 wins were good enough to win the West, but the Tigers, Blue Jays, Orioles, and Red Sox, and Yankees all had more wins while residing in the powerful ALC, AL East than Kansas City had that whole year. And short series are never free of anxiety. And even though the Tigers would sweep the Royals game two and three were nail biters, that Detroit was able to pull out late. And with their second champagne celebration of progress, the wire-to-wire Tigers have but one goal to accomplish, to put this team of the ages in the history books. So on to the World Series to face Tony Gwynn and his San Diego Padres again. So look, I covered that ALCS versus the Royals in depth last week on the Quisenberry Show, and I covered the 1984 World Series on the Tony Gwynn Show. And the one great thing I love about this show is how some of these stories intertwine with one another. Players and moments, they get connected, and before you know it, it's grown into like this organic baseball tree with ripe fruit hanging off. Of these connecting limbs. So after you listen here, you can check out Quiz and Tony on any of your podcast platforms, or you can visit my site, diamondsnakej.pobbing.com. And the World Series only validated the 1984 Detroit standing as one of those most dominant single season teams. After splitting the first two games in San Diego, the Tigers came home to the old girl and swept the next three games. Of course, there are always tense moments in any nine-inning game with such high stakes, but Detroit just never appeared to be in jeopardy of finishing the season without the crown. Uh, The final win had culminated with Kirk Gibson going yard twice, including a home run of Goose Gossage and in the eighth inning to break open a tight game and route to a 1984 World Series title, and I thought I had the tape here, but I don't. I didn't. I didn't put the audio in the machine. That's my bad on that. But on a side note, Goose Gossage had. Well, he's another guy we talked about last week on the quiz show, and I do find it ironic that he has given up two of the most iconic home runs in the 21st century postseason play. So two of the baddest players had ever laced them up. George Brett, upper deck, 1980 ALCS, and here with Kirk Gibson in the 1984 World Series. And this is a play that will surely be second-guessed forever. Again, I thought I had the audio, but I didn't put it in there. Um, let me see if I can set it up for you. You can always go to YouTube and check it out. But uh, so Goose has a man on second and third with ba- with first base open. So, of course, Padres manager, Dick Williams, he signals to his catcher, Terry Kennedy, to give Kirk Gibson four straight balls. Well, the stubbornly confident Goose Gossage, he shakes off the catcher twice. And Terry calls timeout and walks in the mound. And a conversation ensues that sees third baseman Craig Nettles and shortstop Gary Templeton join the catcher and pitcher on the mound while Goose is standing on his ground. Shaking his head about something. Now, Dick Williams walks onto the mound and asks, what the hell is going on? And you got to listen to this audio. It's on YouTube. It's at this time, in real time, the observant Sparky, sitting in the dugout, he figures out what's going on. And from the dugout, you're going to hear it on the tape. Sparky yells, hey, Gibby, he don't want to walk you. Hey, Kirk, he don't want to walk you. You be ready. And at real time, on the mound, a whole different conversation is taking place. And there's microphone audio of this. Again, you got to check it out. And if you hear them on the mound, Gossett is saying, I can get him. And you will hear manager Dick Williams say, oh, you're talking about striking him out right now. And Gossett says, yeah, I can get him. So I wish I had that. Go out to YouTube and check that out. Uh, Next pitch, boom. Kirk Gibson abuses him, puts it in the upper deck. He should have walked that dude for sure with the base, you know, with the first base open for sure. Uh, really cool stuff. Go, you got to go check it out on YouTube. Uh, ironically, while Gossage has given up two classic postseason home runs in his multi career, he was still able to finish in Cooperstown where as the guy who hit two of the biggest. World Series home runs in the 21st century, Kirk Gibson, one against the Dodgers, one right here for the Tigers. He's not in the Hall, And I just find that crazy. Baseball is just funny that way sometimes. While the 1984 Tigers are clearly one of the most dominant AL teams in the 1980s, I mean, for me, you have them and probably not the 1989 Oakland A's, I'm thinking, as one of the two. I think the Tigers were more dominant, but I think the A's might have been a little bit better. Honestly, I would love to see Jack Morris versus Dave Stewart, Will Cox versus Welch, Petrie versus Moore. Both of these closers for these teams were off the chart in Eckersley and Willie Hernandez. Both managers were geniuses in their brand and Sparky and La Russa. So, I'd really like to know what you guys think. Who was the most dominant AL team in the 1980s? Was it the 1989 A's or the 1984 Tigers? Which one was better? Is there a difference in dominant and better? Are neither of these teams the dominant single-season AL team from the 80s? I'm really curious to know what you guys think. Backwardskpod at gmail.com. Drop me a line. The uh, 84 Tigers, they really caught my imagination as a 13-year-old baseball fan. They just beat teams up all the way to the ship. It's just merciless. And in conclusion, 39 years later, what do we contextually know about that 1984 Tigers team in retrospect? Well, first of all, the team was balanced. They outperformed their Pythagorean uh, expectation of 99-63 and 63 with a 104-58 and 58 record. The team batting average of two seventy-eight that year was second to Boston's two hundred eighty-three. Their seven hundred seventy-four OPS ranked behind Boston's seven hundred eighty-two. And by the way, and real quick sidebar here, I truly hope that with the ship going bye bye in twenty twenty three, that some of these team averages get back to that two seventy, two eighty range. You feel me? But I digress. Lance Parrish, 33 home runs. Kirk Gibson, 27 home runs. Chet Lemon, with his 20 big flies, paced the team's power. Six of the 1984 Tigers, Dave Bergman, Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, Chet Lemon, Kirk Gibson, and Daniel Evans had an OBP over 350, giving them a league leading OBP of 342. And it just sounds like there were Tigers all over the base pass. <laughs> Five regular season starters. They, um, Gave them between 60 and 80 RBIs, yet no single player topped 100. Kirk Gibson became the first Tiger to hit 20 home runs and steal 20 bags that season. Alan Trammell swiped 19 bags as well. I found that remarkable. And the team was first in the AL with total bases, even though they ranked 7th in the league for doubles and 3rd in triples. Again, Hernandez... His brilliance out of the bully was a major factor for Detroit. I told you earlier, he pitched in 80 games that year. 56% of those appearances involved more than one inning of work. In 25% of those games, he pitched two or more innings in relief. And in two of those game games, he came in the, uh, he came in the game in the sixth inning and pitched four complete innings. At the end of the season, Sparky wrote in his diary, don't ask me to explain, Willie. How do you explain a miracle? The 84 Tigers went 53 and 29 at home, 51 and 29 on the road, pretty much the same consistent team. During the regular season they went 47 and 31 against the AL East, uh with winning records versus Milwaukee, Cleveland, the Jays, and the Yankees, and with 6 and 7 records versus Baltimore and Boston. They finished with a run differential of plus 186. The Tigers went 11-2 in extra inning games. They were 32-12 in one-run games. A testament to the arms at the back of that bully, especially in Doug Bear, Aurelio Lopez, and Willie Hernandez. The longest winning streak that year for the Tigers was nine games. They did it twice that year. The first nine-game winning streak was the first nine games of the season. Their longest losing streak for Detroit that season was four games. They did that three times. They are the only Tigers team to win 104 games in a season, and one of only five Tiger teams to win 100 games in a season. They are ranked seventh in team history for attendance, drawing over 2.7 million Tigers fans that year, and they only lost one game in the entire postseason that year. Sparky Anderson became the first manager to have over 100 single-season wins in both leagues. He had previously won 108 games in 1975, 102 in 1976 with his world champion Cincinnati teams. And now he had 104 wins for an AL crown He uh, you know, in a world title. He also became the first manager to win a title in both leagues. And with the Tigers going wire-wire, they became just the third team after the 1923 New York Giants and the 1927 Yankees to accomplish that feat. And folks, I think this is where we're going to wrap this puppy up. But I would be remiss if I didn't play the iconic Ernie Harwell call of the very last out of that amazing 1984 baseball season.
0: bag at first, the pitch, he swings, and there's a fly ball to left... Here comes Herndon. He's there. He's got it. The Tigers are the champions of 1984. They race on the field of Bob Hernandez. The Tigers have won the World Series. They are the champions of the world in 1984.
1: And man. Listen to those high-def pipes declare the Tigers as the best team in baseball. Fucking Ernie. One of the all-time greats. I'm such a huge admirer. Well, folks... Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's show as much as I enjoyed telling it. I'm very interested on who you guys think was the best, most dominant team in the American League during the 1980s. If you want to tell me who who you think was the best and most dominant in the National League during the 80s, go right on ahead, man. I'd love to hear your opinion. You can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com, and we have plenty of material out there about this amazing team. The most notably on YouTube and that Sparky Anderson written diary, Bless You Boys, The Diary of the 1984 Detroit Tigers. It's an awesome read. Step inside Sparky's uh, mental-like baseball mind and lose yourself. It's a great read, c So, with the 1984 Bless You Boys, Detroit Tigers in our collection of ballplayers, I chop the head off our baseball Hydra, Only to see two more topics appear in its place Next week We're gonna Take a look at arguably One of the greatest dead ball era players ever We're headed to the bird baby I'm gonna bring you the story Of the flying Dutchman One of the greatest shortstops who ever lived The great Hottest Wagner And the truth is folks I know about his greatness, I know about his legend, but I know very little about his life. And I'm chomping at the bit to learn about this prolific baseball legend. So there you have it. Bless you boys. The 1984 Detroit Tigers in the books. And this Runaway Freight Train moves on, I'm able to do this because of you. And I'm extremely grateful. Please remember to listen, share, and download. If you're on Spap, Spotify or Apple, please rate and review me as you see Fit i ain't skirt. It keeps the show viable in the search engines, puts a little food on my table. But most importantly, it allows me to continue to do the thing that I love more than anything in this world. And that's preach the gospel of baseball to awesome people such as yourself. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, they got their noses in the porn. Looking bored, eh, <laughs> you By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. Thanks for sharing my sandbox with me this week, helping me make sandcastles. God willing, we'll all be back next week, and we'll do it all over again, you freaks. Happy Valentine's Day to all my good sisters in the audience. There's nothing sexier Than the women who love the seams, baby. That's honor those hotties, baby. And like my boy Shale Hillebrand said in our one-on-one interview a few months back. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, seam heads.